Good morning, Miles City. How you guys doing today? All right, we're so glad that you're here. Here we are in the book of John. We've been in the book of John for a little bit, and we're excited to be in chapter 6 today. We're finishing out chapter 6. We've been in it for a couple of weeks, and it's been a great time looking at the book of John and what John is trying to get us to understand. John is one of the four gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, but John is a little bit different than the other three. The other three uh, really focused a lot on uh, what Jesus did, but John was more focused on who Jesus was. In fact, at the end of the book, in John chapter 20, and verse number 31, we see what John wanted us to understand. He said, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John said, listen, I want you to know that Jesus is the Son of God and that you understand through him and only him is how you have eternal life. That's what the book of John is about. He's not so much concerned of what Jesus did, but more concerned about who he was. And so here we are in chapter 6 of our series, Lawbreaker, and basically Jesus has been defying the laws of nature the past two weeks. Uh, Two weeks ago we talked about him breaking the bread and the fishes and feeding 5,000 men, more than likely 20,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. Last week we talked about him walking across the water into the boat, another impossibility to anyone but God. But now we come to the end of chapter 6 and Jesus isn't breaking any natural laws or physical laws in this last chapter. No, he's trying to break down the laws of tradition that men have put up barriers for them getting to know who he is. And so he starts breaking down these laws. And uh, in this passage, we're going to see Jesus make one of the first of seven I am statements that he makes in the book of John. John 6, 35, he said this, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so Jesus, today we're looking at him being the hunger breaker. And when I got thinking about that this week and Um, I got thinking about what breaks hunger, nothing better than food, obviously, and uh, I thought about my eating habits, and I have to be honest with you, I am a person that bases the value of food on how it tastes, not how nutritional it is, okay? Is anybody else like that in here? Your first thought is not, is this nutritious, is is this going to taste good? Anybody like that? All right, quite a few of you. I realize there are some of you out there that eat just to live. You know you have to eat to live. And there are some, I don't know how people do that. I admire you for being that disciplined. I eat because I enjoy eating a lot. Okay? I mean, when it comes to eating, I want to see, does is this going to taste good? I don't care about how much nutritional value is in it. I, that never even crosses my mind. I don't read labels like, hey, is this going to taste good? You know, I'm always into desserts. You know, I, I will eat them all the time. When it comes to picking between a piece of fruit like an apple or an apple pie, I promise you, I will always pick an apple pie. Okay, and I like apples. They're, they're nice, especially when you cut them up, put some sugar on them and some cinnamon and put some <laughs> dough around them and make apple pie. I mean, I'm, in, I'm one of those guys that, man, I'll eat an apple pie anytime. I'll buy them Hostess apple pies that, you know, you get for a dollar at Speedway that have all that coated sugar on the outside. That you're worried that your wife is going to see the mess on your shirt after you eat it and get on you because you aren't eating healthy. I love those things. I'm one of those people that if I don't eat, I begin to get hangry. You know that feeling? How many say, that's me, I get hangry in here? Yeah, all right. Okay. I always will have an opinion on what I want to eat and where I want to eat. 
My wife never asked the question, hey, I'm just going to pick a place and bury will probably like it. Don't, don't surprise me. I'm one of them people, if you tell me at the beginning of the day what you're making for dinner, don't change it because I've been thinking all day about what I'm going to eat when I get home. And then I get home, well, I made something different. I'm like, man, I, my mind was ready for this and you made this. I'm one of them people. You know, yesterday uh, my wife made soup on, it was, you know, a rainy day outside. She made soup. I'm not a big soup fan. Soup is like the thing you eat to get to the real meal. You know, same thing with salad. Salad's just a warm-up. Like, oh, I'm getting my taste buds ready to eat the steak and the baked potato and things like that. You know, salad's good if I'm having lasagna and Italian bread and stuff like that. Who wants to eat salad for a meal? That's disappointing. And so last night we're out, and I can't make up my mind what I want, but I know I don't want soup. And so I think I ended up, like, eating some kind of turkey wrap or something and some popcorn and stuff like that. It was a little disappointing, but... My wife knows if I get a certain attitude about me that I need to eat. If I go too long without food, my tolerance level for people and their problems goes way down. Okay, I'm just being honest. Between services, I went and ate a bunch of food between services because I was getting hungry. Because my wife knows I'll say something to her and our first question out of her mouth will be, are you hungry? How'd you know? Just the way you're acting. Let's get you some food, all right? I'm just one of those guys that is like that now. For some of you in here, you might relate exactly. You understand what I'm talking about. And you're like, man, I feel the same way. And, and you know, I can say I'm hungry. But some of us, the worst hunger we experience is, hey, I, I missed lunch. Or I didn't eat dinner. Or, hey, it's been, I'm fasting for a day or two. And we, we talk about how we're hungry. But really, compared to a lot of people in the world, that's not what hunger is. I looked up some stats. Uh, world Vision talks about that one million kids a year die from malnutrition. They just don't have enough food. They don't have enough food that's going to sustain them, and they die from that. One in ten people are so hungry, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. In the world, one in ten people right now have no idea where they're going to get their next meal. You know, we live in a country where we don't even have to get up off the couch now to get food. Think about it. Most of us live within ten miles of ten grocery stores. And so we sometimes say we're hungry, but really we're not hungry We've just, our stomach isn't as full as it normally is. When you take that from the the physical side to the spiritual side, we start thinking about there are things that we're hungry for in life. There are things that we need satisfied. And and some of us, we, we might not understand this spiritual side, but we believe that Scripture teaches us that God created us to have a relationship with us. God created Adam and Eve so that he could come down Uh, Scripture says in Genesis, in the cool of the evening to walk with him in the garden and to talk with him. God made us to be in relationship with him. I think everybody is created that way. I think that's why everybody has a spiritual hunger whether they recognize it or not. And so many times we search for things outside of the spiritual realm to try to satisfy our, our hunger or our desire. We're like, man, I just, I don't know what I need, but I'm still looking for it. Some people spend their life uh, accumulating wealth because they think if I, if I make enough money, if I have a good enough job and I have enough money in my bank account and I have these things, then I'll be satisfied, I'll be happy. And yet it seems like we always need just a little bit more. Some people look for satisfaction in physical relationships and, hey, if I just have uh, this physical relationship with this person, it's going to make me so happy. And yet they find out it's not and we see so many famous people that you think, how could they not be attracted to? Or how could they not be happy? And yet they're miserable. And their marriage ends up in divorce because that satisfaction didn't come from that person they thought it would come from. Some of us, we just want 
some satisfaction. We just want the pain to go away in our life. Some, some of us, we just are tired of the struggle. We just want to find something that takes it away. We're always looking for something that's going to bring us satisfaction, that's going to bring us back to who God is. And we have to ask ourselves today, what are we hungry for? Really, what are we looking for in our life? And in this passage, Jesus makes that statement. He says, I am the bread of life. He's what satisfies that hunger. So John, in this passage, he's going to show from this message that Jesus preached, hey, this is what's going to bring you satisfaction. So today we're going to look at the last part of John chapter 6, and we're going to see what Jesus is trying to get these folks to understand. But before we jump into it today, can we just take a moment and pray together? Lord Jesus, we come to you today and we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you care for us. We thank you for uh, the word of God, for scripture that makes it so clear on how much you love us and what you did for us to have a relationship with us. And God, I just ask over the next few minutes that in our minds, that our minds will be clear of distractions, that Lord, we would focus on what the Holy Spirit is saying, on what your word is saying. I ask that I would say the words that you would have me to say. Lord, we thank you that you are patient with us. We thank you that you are kind and that you love us. And Lord, we ask that what is done today would bring honor to your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to be in John chapter number 6, and there's a couple things. We're going to finish out the chapter, and if you're looking at the chapter, I think it has 70 verses in it, uh, 71 verses. I am not going to speak on every verse because we're starting in verse number 25, all right? So I'm not going to speak on every verse. And I'm not saying that these verses aren't important. In fact, I want to encourage you sometime this week to sit down and read John chapter 6 from the start to the finish. There's a lot that's happened in John chapter 6. He's fed the 5,000. They want to make him a king, so he goes off to the mountain to be alone. He sends his disciples across the sea. Last week we talked about him walking on the water to him. This is all basically the same story. This isn't chunked up. These are we believe consecutive days happening. And so in John chapter number 6 and verse number 25, we pick up the passage where it says this, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. It goes on in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Here comes the multitude, the same one that Jesus had fed the previous day, and they're hungry already. They're already hungry. And that's the thing about food, right? You can eat all you want, but I promise you tomorrow you're going to be hungry again. And they're hungry, and they're looking for another free meal. They come to him, and they're seeking they're seeking something. Now, we don't know their motives. We know some of them were hungry for a meal. But I, I believe that in this crowd there were actually some people trying to find out who Jesus was. But the majority of them, Jesus calls out right at the start. He says, you're just hungry. You just want another meal. You're not looking for signs. See, the Jews were all about the signs they were looking for the signs. That's why Jesus did the miracles. That's why the apostles did the miracles. They were showing the Jews the signs that, hey, what we're saying is legitimate. The Jews wanted to see the signs. And so he said, but you're not even looking for that. You're just hungry. You want another free handout. So he says, I've come to be your savior. 
He makes it a spiritual matter. He says, you're looking for something physical, just like the Samaritan woman a couple chapters ago wanted that water that she'd never thirst again. And Jesus says, you're not understanding. It's not a physical water. It's a spiritual water. He turns it on and says, I I am the one that you're looking. I am the bread that you need to have. In fact, look at verse 28 again. Verse 28 and 29 said this. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, singular, that you believe in him whom he has sent. They had this idea that, hey, we're seeking some answers, and you're saying we need to have this bread of life, and and we want that. What works do we have to do? What do we have to do to do this? And Jesus takes that plural word, and he makes it a singular work and said, hey, God has done the work. God is doing the work. It's not you guys that do the work. It's me. And right here, Jesus lays out the gospel plain and clear. It's not that I can ever do anything to earn myself to have a relationship with God. He's already done it all for me because my works would never measure up to his work. Some of us in this room, we might think, well, I can do enough good deeds and I can do enough good things. But none of us could ever measure up to the standard that God has. So Jesus is telling us, and you're not having to do works. God's done them already. And yet they're seeking They spend a lifetime looking, but they don't find. And some of us are in that position because we can't be satisfied with the things that we're looking for. We're trying to find what brings satisfaction in our life. These people are trying to find the satisfaction that would just give them more bread to eat. Hey, this guy's handing out free bread, and it's the best stuff we've ever tasted. Let's go get some more. He's saying you're missing it. The question we ask ourselves is, does our hunger cause us to seek Temporary satisfaction or an eternal savior. Several years ago, there was a big push among churches, and the push was, hey, we want to be a seeker-friendly church. We, want people, we know people are seeking, and we want to be a place that they can come. And sometimes they got a bad rap. I, I think the motivation behind it was right. is They wanted a place that people could come that were looking for answers. They wanted them to feel comfortable, and so we changed the way we did services and how we do things. We made it a little more modern, a little more up-to-date so people could say, hey, this is, come here if you're seeking. We're a seeker-friendly church. Thinking about that this week, and really, I don't know if I want to be a part of a seeker-friendly church. I want to be part of a finder-friendly church. When people come to a church, we're seeking a lot of things. For instance, some of you might be here today because we have a good kids program. Some of you might be here today because you like the kind of music or the style of music that we sing. Some of you might be here today because you wanted to hear Travis speak and now you're mad because you got to listen to me speak. <laughs> We're all over the place. You're like, when, would they just post the schedule when Travis is speaking so I can know where I'm going? I see your faces when you walk in. Don't try to trick me, all right? I know what's going on. The problem is, is we seek out all these programs and we find the church that fits the program that we like. But what happens when the program doesn't line up with what we like? Hey, you want to know a little secret? I don't like all the programs we do at Mile City. I don't even like all the songs we sing. There's things that we do that I can't stand. I'll give you for an instance. And don't tell Travis, and he's going to probably watch this online, but we'll edit this part out. <laughs> we do this, like, sing-along Christmas carol thing at the farm a couple Christmases ago. That, I hated that. 
I never want to go to that again. I save vacation days now, so if that pops up on the calendar, I'm on vacation. And you guys laugh, but most of you weren't there either. I don't care how cold or warm it is. I don't want to stand around singing Christmas carols at a farm. What happens when we do something you don't like? Do you leave? So many times we're about the programs instead of we need to be focusing on the people. The reason I come to Miles City, the reason I came to Miles City before I was ever on staff here was because I like the mission and vision of Miles City to help people move towards God. And if you're here and you've been here a while and you didn't know that was our mission and vision, I'm sorry that we failed you because we want you to understand we want people to move towards God. If you ever look at that green card that's in that chair when you sit down, it's sitting right across the front of it with seven mile markers that if we do these seven things, we think you're going to move towards God. Because there's going to be a time when your kids aren't kids anymore and the kids program doesn't matter to you. There's going to be a time when you're so deaf or you're so old or you can't hear anymore that you don't care what the music is. Can't hear it anyway. And they're going to sing new songs that you don't listen to because you're going to stuck on a praise and worship of the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s. Oh, this music will get old eventually. What are we going to do? Are we going to constantly look for something else that has a better program or a more exciting program? Or are we going to go a place that's worried about the people and helping them find Jesus? Quit looking for temporary satisfaction and find an eternal Savior. So Jesus tells them to believe on him, but the crowd doubts and they want another sign. Scripture tells us in these verses that, that I, I'm not going to read. They, they say, hey, Moses in the wilderness fed us for 40 years, six days a week. You only fed us once. It's crazy. But yet I do the same thing to Jesus all the time. Hey, I, I don't care what you did. This was yesterday. Yesterday you fed 20,000 people with just five loaves and two fishes, but what are you doing for me today? So Jesus says to him in verse number 32, he says this. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 34 goes on and says this. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus reminds them that the manna didn't come from Moses, but it came from heaven. And he says, I've come down from heaven. And just like the Samaritan woman, they wanted something like that. So they asked Jesus for it. They say, hey, what, what do we have to do to get this bread? In verse 38, Jesus makes this statement that really gets him upset. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jews in the crowd fixate on that statement that he came down from heaven. In fact, they respond in verse number 41. Look what they say. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus, you claim to be from heaven, but we know your mom and dad. You're not from heaven. You're from Nazareth. You know, we know where you're from. You're not from heaven. They had a real problem with what he was saying there. 
So Jesus goes on, and, and the verses that we're not going to jump into a lot, verses 43 through 50, Jesus gives a theological lesson on salvation. He says, listen, the Father gives me those who he will. Those that hear the truth of who I am and are come to me, I'll never lose them. Basically, he starts talking about eternal security. He starts talking about predestination, the foreknowledge, and the election of God. All that's covered in 10 verses, and you're like, man, that's a lot of stuff. That's why we're not going to spend it on there today, because a couple weeks ago, we talked about that. You say, well, how do I know if I've been drawn by God? If you're sitting in here today and hear the gospel preached and the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, you're being drawn by God. Say, what about my free will? That's a good question for Jesus and God when you get to heaven because I can't explain it. And anybody that says they can is a liar. Okay, I'm just telling you straight up because people have been arguing this for thousands of years about the difference between election and free will and how they can run parallel and be the same. We'll, we'll figure it out in heaven with Jesus. But it, he not only stops drawing us at salvation, he also draws us to himself as we walk with him. And that's one thing we can be thankful for is that Jesus loves us so much he continues to draw us. So he gives him this theological lesson. And then in verse number 51, he says this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus doubles down in verse number 53 and says this. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. So they grumbled and they disputed. They grumbled about him saying he came down from heaven. Now they're disputing about him saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. See, they were skeptical of what he had to say. I'm going to be honest. If you just read these couple verses and you're like, man, that's kind of gross. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Is he calling us to be zombies and vampires? I mean, you think about the average person today that doesn't have any foundation in Scripture. What would be their life? What would be the basis on which they would base this verse right here? They're like, what? And these guys were good Jews. Jews wouldn't even touch a pig, let alone human flesh. You're like, what is going on here? And so here's another theological point that I wanted to stop just for a second. So many would say, okay, this has to do with communion. He's referring to the Lord's Supper. He's referring to the last meal, the remembrance meal that he's going to do with the disciples. In fact, today we have communion. We're going to take communion today before we leave. We say, hey, that's what it is. The problem is Jesus hasn't even started to lay down the groundwork of how he's going to die yet. This isn't him. I... Many theologians, and I agree with them, don't think that he's talking about communion right here. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper. Okay, well then, he must be talking about when we drink the blood and eat the flesh, then it turns into his blood and flesh when we partake of it. Many of you have been raised Catholic or you're part of the Catholic Church and maybe you're here visiting with us today and you say, yeah, that's what we believe. It's the transubstantiation of Christ into our body. I'm only going to say that word one time. I got it right. Okay. We, don't, we as a church don't agree with that. And if you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk to you more about it. I don't have time today to go into all the places where we think that. It's just, it just represents. But Jesus here, he's talking figuratively. This is a figurative thing that he's saying. For instance, have you ever heard somebody say, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse? Now, did you really think that they were going to eat a horse? 
Did you get the impression that when they said this, oh, they're eating a horse? It's not what they were saying. Jesus many times would use figurative language. He spoke in parables a lot of time in Scripture. Parables were an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. This is figurative language that he's not being literal. He's saying, here's what he's saying, though. If you keep reading the passage, many times Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture. Not many times, all the time. And in verse number 56, here's what he said. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The idea that Jesus, when you read the totality of this passage, the idea that he's trying to get across is, listen, I want you to be consumed by me. I want you to abide in me. I want you to lose yourself in me. I want you to look more and more like me. You've got to become what I've asked you to become. You've got to have this attitude that, listen, I can't consume enough of Jesus. I need more of him in my life every day. I want you to consume me. And yet they were skeptical. Many of us, we live in that zone, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. Some of the stories that you read in Scripture seem pretty crazy. We tell people, hey, when they've come to Christ or maybe they're looking to know more about Jesus, we say, hey, read the book of John. The book of John is great. And so just in this chapter of loan, Jesus has taken five loaves and two fishes and fed 5,000 men. He's walked on water, and now he's telling you to be a vampire and a zombie. Many of you are skeptical. And I understand that. Many of us live in that place. We're like, I don't know if I can trust all these things that he's telling me to do. I don't know if these things are true. All these miracles. You say you believe Jesus after three days rose from the dead? Come on. The question we have to ask ourselves is, is my hunger pushing me or pushing me to see him as only a prophet Or am I seeing him as the promised one? See, these people came to him, and they had no problem thinking he was a good teacher. They had no problem thinking that he was a prophet of old that was telling them some good truths. They accepted that. But Jesus says, you can't stop there. You have to see me as the promised one. You have to see me as the Savior. We believe a lot of things in life. We take by faith, and yet so many times we struggle with believing by faith that Jesus is the Son of God and that he paid the price for our sins. Many of us say we believe that, and yet we live a wholly different life. If you came today to church just so you could check a box and say, hey, I went to church, I did a a good deed this week, then you're here for the wrong reason. Good deeds aren't going to draw you any closer to God. Abiding in him is what draws us to him. Having a personal relationship is what draws us to Jesus. Hey, going to church is great. Reading your Bible is great. Telling other people about him, those are all great things. But if you're just doing them to say, hey, I've done my duty. I'm a good Christian. You're missing the point of what Jesus wanted them to understand. These people kept laws we can't even imagine keeping today. They had the Old Testament memorized. They knew all the laws. They were keeping all of them. Yet they missed the point of who Jesus was. And he was the promised one. They missed it. So in closing today, they come down, they hear this message, and in verse number 66, there's this verse that's very sad. It says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They were on the bandwagon. Now, 
this year, um, I'm not from Detroit, and so um, I've never really been a Lions fan, okay? But this year, it's fun to watch the Lions because, what are they? I think they're 4-1 right now, right? And they're favored to win today on the road against Tampa Bay. I mean, it's a good time to be a Lions fan, right? In fact, it's so good to be a Lions fan that this year, for the first time ever, Ford Field is sold out. Season tickets are sold out. You want to buy a ticket, you got to buy it on a secondary. First time since it's been opened. Why is that? Because there's bandwagon fans. Hey, the Lions are good. I'm a Lions. I've been a Lions fan all my life. I look around, and in the first service, there was actually a few more Lions fans wearing stuff today. Than I, only see like, I only see a couple today. But I promise you, if the Lions keep winning, I'll have you come stand up here. We'll start taking a picture of people wearing Lions gear the closer it gets to playoffs. Oh, I've been a Lions fan for way back. What are you talking about? My whole life I've been rooting for them. Now, listen, some of you have. Some of you understand this. But let's be honest. A lot of us, we're only watching it because they're winning. Nobody wants to watch a loser. That's why we watch Michigan instead of Michigan State. Oh. Sorry about that. I slipped out. Sorry. For all you Michigan State fans, I really am sorry. All right. We've been there. Brady Hoke. But listen, we know what a difference between a bandwagon fan is and somebody that's totally committed. And here are these people, they jump off the bandwagon. They're like, oh, this is a little too much for me, Jesus. If you're not going to feed me, I really don't want to know about the spiritual stuff. I just wanted a free meal. <laughs> people are still like that today. I'm just going to be honest. But Peter... The guy we like to talk about opening his mouth and not thinking about what he's saying. So many times in scripture, you're like, Peter, why did you say that? Look what Peter says in verse number 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed. And I've come to know you that you are the Holy One of God. Peter says, listen, where else are we going to go? You're the only one that can bring satisfaction. Instead of splitting, he was staying. He said, we're only going to follow you. Who else are we going to follow? You are the Holy One of God. We have to ask ourselves this question. Does our hunger drive us to turn to or from Christ? Does our hunger drive us from or to Christ? These people's hunger was such a physical thing that they couldn't see the spiritual application that Jesus was trying to make, and so they left. There's a lot of people today that say they follow after Jesus, but when things get hard, they stop following. Things get difficult, they find something else to numb the pain, to help them get through the day, not realizing that they're missing what Jesus can offer far beyond any physical relief. Peter understood. He said, listen, my hunger drives me to you, God, because you are the Holy One of God. Where else can I go but to you? I can find no satisfaction in life that lasts the same way that you bring me. And Peter proved it with his life. So today, as we close, really, there's just one question I want us to ask ourselves is, will we go home hungry? 
Will you go home hungry? Jesus makes it abundantly clear in this passage that he is the son of God. He said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. You might be sitting here today searching. You might not have known that you were what you were getting yourself into when you walked in today. Maybe you were invited by a friend. Maybe there's something going on in your life. You said, hey, I just want to try out church. But can I encourage you that Jesus loves you and that he can satisfy the hunger that is inside of you right now that you can't find satisfaction to? It doesn't matter how hard you search. If it's not Jesus, eventually it wears off. Eventually it goes away. The day of the choice is yours. Will you go home hungry? If you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus today, you can put your faith and trust in him. Scripture teaches, in fact, John, later on, we're going to see where John talks about Jesus gave his life on the cross for our sins. Our sins are what separate us from God. Our sins are what break fellowship with him because God is a holy and just God. And sin breaks that relationship we have with him. But Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to leave heaven, come to earth, live as a man, and give his life on a cross for our sins. It was so intense that while he hung on that cross, his own father, his heavenly father, forsook him. Because he couldn't look at the sin of the world. Jesus died. He paid the price for that sin, but he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again to show that he had power not only over sin, but also death. That we no longer have to fear sin and death in our life because Jesus can give us the victory over it. And today, if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I know who Jesus is. I've been going to church most of my life. I, I know who Jesus is. It doesn't matter if you just know who he is. All these people that came for this free meal, they knew who Jesus was. They hadn't entered into that personal relationship with him. Today, if there's never been a time in your life, today can be that day. Just believing in Jesus is not enough. You have to believe that he died for your sins. You have to believe that you need a savior and he's the only solution. So if we could just bow our heads in an attitude of prayer right now and if you're honest with God and you're honest with yourself and today is the day that you want to make that decision. Could I encourage you to say something like this to him and these words aren't aren't what saves you, it's the attitude of your heart is what saves you. But if you were to say something like, I confess my sins to you. Jesus, I believe that you are God. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose again from the dead. Today, I lower my pride. I confess my sins to you and I put my faith and trust in you and only you. receive you into my life. God, for those that prayed that prayer today for the first time, I just ask that even right now they would understand that decision that they've made, this trust that they've put in you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit drawing them to yourself. God, we're thankful that we can be secure in the salvation that you offer 
you are the one that saves us. Thank you for the sacrifice that you paid on the cross for our sins. God, for those of us that follow after you, I ask that we would continue to abide in you. That we wouldn't look for temporary satisfaction, but that we'd look to an eternal Savior. That our skepticism wouldn't win out, Lord, that our faith would win over our doubts. That we'd walk with you. Lord, the things that we're hungry for, I ask that those are the things that draw us closer to you, that we find satisfaction in you and only you. We thank you for your love for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today, if you made a decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that's the greatest decision that you could ever make. In fact, we would love an opportunity to talk to you about that. If you did that today, there's a couple ways that you could let us know. You could fill out that green card on there. There's a place that you can check that you made a faith decision. You could catch me in the hall. You can text the word Miles City to 94,000. Follow the prompt on there. It'll explain to you the steps to take. We think moving together is better. And so the reason that we want to know is not so we can give you a bunch of rules and lists and all these, all the things you can do. We just want to answer any questions you have and pray with you and encourage you.